Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. Hey, good morning and welcome to The Grove. My name is Stephen and I'm one of the pastors here and we are so glad that you are with us today. Now we got something special in store for you on this 4th of July weekend. Over the last 12 weeks, we have been in the story in the book of Exodus, walking through this story. And today we are wrapping it all up and we are putting an exclamation point on this series. And to do so, I had a conversation with my friend, Rabbi Asher Knight, and he walked us through some of the nuance and some of the beautiful detail that we just didn't have time to go over over the last 12 weeks. But this conversation that he and I were able to have about the significance and about the meaning and the beauty of the story of Exodus is something that I am so excited to share with you today. So sit down, grab a cup of coffee, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with me and Rabbi Asher Knight. All right, well, Rabbi Knight, I so appreciate you taking time um, to be with us this morning uh, for this conversation. Um, Before we jump in, would you just do me the favor of kind of introducing yourself to our congregation um, and just tell a little bit about who you are? Sure. So my name is Asher Knight, and I am a rabbi. I uh, grew up in Denver, Colorado, was born and raised, and then um, matriculated to college, and after college went to seminary. I started in Jerusalem, and then uh, came back and finished seminary in the United States. And for the first nine years of being a rabbi, I served in Dallas, Texas, um, at a congregation called Temple Manual, which is at Hillcrest and Northwest Highway. And, um, and now I serve a congregation in Charlotte, North Carolina, as a, se- as a senior rabbi of, of that congregation. I, um, my wife, Anna, is also a rabbi. And we have two children, Micah, age eight, and Jonas, age four and a half. And uh, that half uh, year is very important to him right now. <laughs> I, I bet it is. Well, I'm glad we got that for the official record that he is for. Absolutely. <laughs> well, um, I know we've had a couple of conversations, but one of the reasons that I'm so excited to have you with us today is for the last 12 weeks, we've been walking through the story of Exodus. And one of the things that we've been saying is that the story of Exodus is not an isolated story that stands alone, but it's one that is connected to the whole story of Scripture. And it's a story that, you know, we continue to live out in our daily lives. And I think maybe not ironically, but most obviously over the last three months, we have seen so many parallels between the story of Exodus and maybe the themes and the lessons of Exodus and where we find ourselves in current events. And so I would be really interested to hear from your perspective, um, kind of how you view the significance of both the event of Exodus and the story itself. Sure. You know, this, I'll, I'll go with the story first, and then, it'll, and then we'll talk about the event. Um, you know, uh, the, the story that happened once upon a time um, happens all the time, right? A story of people who um, experience slavery and servitude and pain and oppression that have the audacity to imagine a better place in a promised land and to partner with God uh, and each other in that journey towards that that potential of freedom is a story that so many people 
can ascribe to because of their own experiences with oppression, their own experiences of the challenge of, of difficulty and the recognition that there is a possible future that is promising, um, provided that we partner with God and partner with each other to get there, right? And it's a journey. And it's a journey that is, is fundamentally important. And, um, and so it makes a lot of sense that you've been studying the, the book of Exodus these last you know, 12 weeks. And it makes a lot of sense that for all the things that are happening in our uh, country, in our world, that, that, that notion of, of the Exodus event plays, um, plays a part of people's consciousness um, because the story is timeless. Um, and, um, and, that, and that is, uh, you know, that's, that's why, you know, multiple religions, um, right, you know, uh, understand the story of Exodus as being also their story. Um, and that's, that's, really, that's really important. In terms of the event, I mean, the event is, is, world, is world changing, right? Uh, if we understand uh, the event to happen as it, as it did in the book of Exodus, we see a people who have uh, come from uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Becca, Rachel, and Leah, and, uh, and come to, uh, because of, of famine, uh, come to Egypt and are uh, saved because of Joseph and the relationship that he developed with the Pharaoh. And then there arose in the first chapters of, of Exodus, a king, a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. And that shifts everything and changes everything. And we, we recognize that our people, uh, the Israelites were enslaved for 400 years. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and then this miraculous thing happened. They, um, through, through God and through Moses' leadership and Aaron's leadership and Miriam's leadership, there's a recognition that, um, that what was in Egypt, a place of, of, of that oppression, um, can no longer stand and no longer is, no, is not just. And, um, and, we, and they decided, they had what we call, you know, audacity or chutzpah in Judaism, right? To just, to, to go towards that promise. And it changed the world. And it gave everyone uh, the a sort, of, a sort of sense of what is possible um, in the face of, of, of really uh, difficult circumstances. And along that journey and along that path, we have the revelatory moment of Mount Sinai that gives the commandments and the ideals and precepts to our people to create in the promised land a society that stands as an, a, really a polar opposite to what Egypt was, right? And, um, and we can talk a little more about those commandments, but, but that's, that's, that's it. And then to then create a, a spiritual centering where that, that journeys with the people um, that says that it's, it is not just about what happens on Mount Sinai, but it is also what happens in our worship, in our prayers, and in our actions towards one another that will ultimately help to create a more whole and holistic society. So from a, from a perspective of the Exodus, it's an unbelievable event that's world-changing, and it's a story that resonates absolutely with so many people over so many generations and so many traditions, uh, because um, we've all been there. Yeah, that's that's really beautiful. I I had never really heard it um, in terms before of like this kind of audacity to hope for something better, to hope for something different. Uh, and I think that to me, that's one of the things that seems to stand out about 
this particular moment in time is this break from this kind of cyclical nature of the way life always goes. And, and then this group of people for maybe the first time in the history of the world begins to imagine what else could be, that it doesn't always have to be the way that it has always been, that something new could be born and that God is kind of prompting and kind of ushering them uh, towards that. Um, the other thing that has stood out to me as we've walked through this is, and I think it's a disservice that modern readers do to this story, um, because we identify with the ways that our journey with God into a new place is difficult. But I think at least what I do is I read uh, almost critically of the people because of their difficulty to follow, their difficulty to obey, their difficulty to trust. And and I make the assumption that, well, I'm not like them. Like, how could they not understand? Like, God was leading them by a pillar of fire. Like, how could you not get that right? Um, but that that's, we find ourselves in that same place. And, and I don't know if you have experience with that. I mean, sure. I mean, first off, you know, I had an extra cookie this evening after dinner. <laughs> and, and I'm pretty sure that I, I know exactly how my physician would, would say would say about the cookie. And, and that's probably not, you know, not a good choice, right? I, I, I think, and so... And a couple of things. I mean, the the thing about the thing that happens with slavery and servitude and, and and oppression is that it it strips away all sense of agency, all sense of all sense of sort of self um, actualization. And so the 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 journey itself, the 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 journey towards that freedom, also it means that the um, Israelites are having to rethink every aspect. Of, of what they understand and what they know. And what that means is that, um, is that they actually, uh, ha- there's, there's sometimes two steps forward and one step back, right? Um, and, and that, so for example, I mean, I'm sure you, you, you've read this, but you know, the Israelites complain about the food, even though they're given manna, right? They complain, you know, there, there, there could have been cucumbers and there could have been, um, uh, you know, uh, other, other wonderful things in, in, in Egypt, right? They complain about the food and then, you know, and, and they're at Mount Sinai and there is this revelatory moment. And what is it that they're doing? They're like making a golden calf at the, at the base of the mountain, right? But, but, but they're also doing what they knew, right? What was the, what were the, you know, how did people pray and worship in, in Egypt? Well, there were lots of, I mean, I've been to Egypt. I've been, you know, there's lots of statues to lots of different gods and so, right. And, and so they, they, they're utilizing what they knew and they're having to transform from what they knew to what they're going to become. And I think that's true of all of us, of whether you're a parent, you know, working with children or you are, um, you know, struggling with, uh, you know, setting goals and recognizing that sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. And, you know, we all, many of us struggle with that. And I think that that's why the story is also so human is that, um, is that, is that in fact, um, the message really says um, that that route to the promised land isn't a direct shot. I mean, it doesn't take 40 years to get from Egypt to Israel. I promise you. I mean, I've, I've driven it, um, <laughs> right? It just, it, doesn't, it just doesn't take that long. But, but perhaps there's something important in the journey. And there's a story, and there's a, and I think, I think that that's, that the journey is about uh, a sense of belonging to the tribes and to, to the community of Israel and to God. And there's a sense of becoming. 
Mm. And, and that sense of becoming is what does it mean to be an Am Kadosh? What does it mean to become a holy people? What does it mean to, uh, to create a society that is fair and just and righteous? What does it mean to have a relationship with God that is transcendent? And, and that is a process of becoming. None of us are there. Mm. And that's why the, sto- the journey itself, I and mean, what's also exodus from Egypt, right? The, the, that's a miraculous event. Yeah. But the journey itself, I mean, the rest of the story is about the journey mm. and what happens on the journey. And, you know, um, that all of us have rebirthing moments. All of us have moments where, where you know, where things come fresh and anew to us. And, and then the journey afterwards, well, that's where the story happens. And that's, that's important. Yeah, that, that was one of the things that when I was kind of trying to map out where we might go over 12 weeks, uh, I didn't realize truly how much story happens once they leave Egypt. You know, in, in the kind of Cliff Notes version that we often do, it's, you know, <laughs> Red Sea, Ten Commandments, maybe, and then, then we're on to, you know, the next, the next book. But yeah, this idea of almost accepting as part of the reality that uh, the journey to something new or someplace new or to be somebody new uh, is never efficient. It's never quick. Um, and it is always kind of met with struggle because there is a lot of unlearning we have to do on top of the, the new learnings that we have to gain. Um, I think that, that it's so interesting to think about what that means for the place we find ourselves in in this world right now. Yeah, yeah, because it's not just about what we have done. It's what, it's what we can yet be. And I think that there's, and when we're talking about the world in which we're living right now, I mean, uh, you know, it's, you know, we, we can't rest on, on the, um, the reflection of the past, right? We we're going to actually have to make our own way. And that might mean unlearning old things. And that might mean reevaluating and rethinking um, how, you know, what kind of society we want to create together. And that might mean that, uh, that there's that in, in ways in which we have partnered with God, there may be, we may, we might take, need to take that value and ethic of that partnership with God and really see it as a partnership between human that, that, you know, really in existence between how we partner with other human beings and that, that we can bring that sense of godliness into the world through how we partner with other human beings. And so there's a lot that we have to, that, that, that can, can really be applied to, from, from the Exodus narrative to the sort of sense uh, insensibility of, of how we engage and emerge in the world. Yeah. I think that not that it is intended to be quantifiable in this way necessarily, but I do think it's interesting that, you know, in the commandments, in the instructions for how to become a holy people, a righteous people, so much of it is appropriated towards relationships with one another. It is not just about, you know, what they're so intertwined, but they're so... No, my, yeah. I mean, that, that, yeah. So my teacher, Rabbi David Stern, who's the senior rabbi of Temple Manual in Dallas, you know, he has a great way of saying that. And, and what, what he taught me was that, you know, the God at the top of Mount Sinai who's given the commandments 
cares deeply about what's happening at the mountain's base and in the marketplace and in the relationships that exist, you know, uh, uh, between people, right? So, so it's not just a religion in which we're, uh, you know, the, the religious nature that we have, right, or that any of us have, frankly, I mean, doesn't have to, it's not just a Judas, Jewish perspective, this is actually of any religious nature, right, can't, you know, the, yes, we want to connect with God, and we want to be able to lift our eyes up to the mountains, right, and, and, to the, and to the ascents, and if we're doing that, and there's something that's disconnected from how we then uh, travel and journey in the world, and the, with the values that we are supposed to live by, and those, the values that we talk about over here, I mean, this is what the prophets talk about all the time. If there's a disconnect between the, the, the values that we talk about in terms of, um, you know, Mount Sinai and lifting ourselves up to God, and then how we go about, you know, treating other people around us, that's a big problem. And what, what, what Exodus is saying, and I think this is why there's even the creation of the tabernacle and that there's a, and there's a creation of a place where we're actually keeping um, the, the commandments, you know, holy and sacred and traveling with us is that they have to be part of our journey. So that when, it talk, when we talk about giving to the poor and to the needy and to the sick, when we're talking about uh, uh, the ways in which we observe um, care for not just the, um, the, the greatest amongst us, but the, the weakest amongst us, that when it talks, when, when we have commandments about how you deal fairly in the marketplace and not cheating and not lying. And right, you, you, you name the, the multiple commandments, right? The 613 commandments that we have in Judaism that we talk about, not just the 10. Um, and, um, and you really look at it and it's all about making sure that we bring godliness into the interactions that we have between one another. Um, Martin Buber, um, did you, I don't know if you studied Buberian theology at all, no. but he, he, Martin Buber has, who, who's, you know, one of my favorite theologians. And that's like a, a statement that I feel like only, you know, pastors and or rabbis can, you know, make. Um, sometimes you're like, who, you know, who goes around? It's like, I, I wish I had, you know, theologian trading cards or something. But, um, but uh, one of my favorite, one of my favorite th Jewish theologians he, what he says is that um, he calls us the, the, um, the theology of I and thou. And what he says is that, um, is that there's sort of two fundamental relationships that, that exist in the world, an I and it relationship and an I and thou relationship. Hmm. And an I it relationship is a kind of, we ha the, there's nothing bad about it. It's not, it, it is just is, you know, when we go to check out of a grocery store, right? We have a function where our function is to pay and their function is to ring us up. Right, and we're not asking necessarily about you know how your how's your mother do. I mean, unless you really know them over years, you're not asking you know deep questions about who that that person is. But what what Buber says is that so so says is that um, we can elevate our relationship to an I thou relationship, which is the way that we speak about with God. And if we can speak, if we can relate to one another by knowing one another that God can exist between us, mm -hmm. right? In our interactions, in the ways in which we relate, in the ways in which we support one another, and that, that God is in, in between. Mm -hmm. And it is only when we start treating other people as a thou and not an it, right? Does God enter into that? Into that. And that, I think, encapsulates so much of the Exodus story, right? we get the vow of Mount Sinai and the 
the earthquake and the thunder and the, the, the revelatory moment. Mm-hmm. And then that vow comes into commandments about how we treat and relate with one another mm-hmm. and elevate each other as though God exists in the in-between. Recognizing the divinity of God in you and you recognizing the divinity of God in me and that when we do that, the sparks of godliness just absolutely light up uh, the universe. Um, and that, that, I think, is a, a beautiful encapsulation of sort of the importance of the commandments. I agree. I mean, that, that is a, a beautiful imagery to think about the I and thou type of relationship. It, that was one of the things that, that struck me most, kind of rereading through Exodus and studying it more, just kind of the revolutionary shift I mean, it's a shift back to what happened in, in the Garden of Eden, but this shift back to restoring human dignity and, you know, divine image, um, especially as a juxtaposition between what they came out of in, in Egypt. This place where there was no, no human dignity, you know, and, and anytime you lose that, you end up with oppression and injustice and slavery and abuse and all of the, you know, the human rights violations we see in the world. I think that's such an important point and I'm glad that you mentioned it, especially for where we find ourselves, you know, with the current events in our nation, just shifting even our approach to an I vow. How would that cause us to see people differently, to think about, you know, their experiences, their pain, their suffering, just the way that totally reframes, even if we don't come to the same conclusions that they do, the way that we approach engaging in conversation with them. Um, Right, so Judaism has a notion of what's called B'Tselem Elohim, that it's not a notion, it's something that's in Genesis, right, that each person is created B'Tselem in the image of Elohim of God, right, so we're all created in the image of God, and, and the, the recognition um, in Exodus is that the, the worst of slavery is the dehumanizing nature of slavery that actually doesn't treat human beings as though they're created in the image of God, but treats them as, um, as an object, as a part of your economic, just simply your economic system, right? And perpetuation of building monuments to yourself. And, right, and, and, and effectively, um, you know, my, uh, the, the commandments are about, right, um, making sure that that sense of, of, of godliness is seen, that each person is seen as being created in the image of God. And it's why the command, you know, it's why you have to treat your laborer fairly. It's, you know, it's, it's why you, you know, the, the, the very values of, you know, treat your neighbor, your co-religionist or your tribesman as yourself and treat the stranger as yourself, right? Um, why? Well, if you look at those texts, they specifically say, because you were once slaves in the land of Egypt, right? You know what it's like. Mm-hmm. And therefore, through your own suffering, through the own pain that you've had in your life, perhaps you can, can, can key in and clue in a little to what it might be like for someone else to want to be human, to want to, to have that sense of, of God in them, and, and, um, and, and to recognize that your shared humanity is actually connected to the shared divinity um, of the universe. So that, that's, that's one thing I would say. I would also... I'd also add that, um, you know, when it comes to 
I'm, now I'm just totally blanked. Hopefully you can, you can erase that part. Um, but when I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think about sort of like what, what, you know, uh, there was another thing that we were just saying. So remind me what you just, you just said something that I, that I really, that I wanted to, to also explain. Dipped and. Uh, oh, I, I remembered it. Thank you. That was brilliant. You perfect, perfect reminder. Um, thank you. You can look at the story of Jethro, right? The Midianite priest, uh, Moses's father-in-law, right? And, and in, right before the giving of the Ten Commandments, do we see Jethro? And you see Moses. And the, 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 the text just so, so clearly explains the injustice of it, of it all. Moses is the judge sort of adjudicating all of these issues that the Israelites are having in the middle of the desert. And it's not going well. And the reason why you know that is because people are standing from morning until evening, waiting for his judgment. And what does just Jethro do? Jethro says, you know, Moses, like this thing that you're doing is not right. You can't do it alone, right? And so what you have to do is you're going to have to give up your power to other people. You're going to have to actually entrust in other people to have the capacity to actually self-govern and, 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 and to be respectful of one another. And so you're going to train, you know, you're going to create a series of chieftains and, and, and tribes and you're going you're to spread the, the responsibility out so that it's not falling upon one person. And boy, isn't that like one of the most ethical ways of, 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 of living, right? That it's not just, you're not just going to one person for all your, your, your answers, but rather that coming from a Midianite priest who's saying, hey, Moses, right? You don't have to be the new Pharaoh, right? You can do it differently. You can democratize, right? And, 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 and spread the responsibility out so that everyone holds a responsibility of, of, of treating each other well, not just you. Yeah, I really like that. That is such a, especially from like a leadership perspective, it's such an interesting story um, because at least for me, the natural tendency is like, no, 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 I'll just try harder and do more myself. <laughs> do it myself. Yeah, no, no, no. What you're doing is not a good thing. Um, so we've talked about quite a few different themes that kind of all you know find themselves in the story of Exodus. Are there any that that you notice that people overlook um, that you would hope that we would pay attention to or we would take with us? Just something that maybe doesn't always get top billing like some of these other ideas do, but that is equally as important. Yeah, you know it's interesting. The um, a couple of things. Um, one is I think people misconstrue the 10 plagues. Um, and I think that it's worthwhile just to understand something about the 10 plagues. Um, on one hand, the 10 plagues are about convincing Pharaoh and the Egyptians to let the Israelites go. And if you read the plagues and you look at the plagues, each one of the plagues is connected to an Egyptian god, right? I don't, did you, I don't know if you discussed this, right? But- Oh, I stole it from you in our previous conversation. Oh, you did? Okay, great. So, right, so- Publicly, you get full credit for introducing- Okay, that's right. So, so, so in, in the piece, in, the, in, that, in that sense, right, it is about convincing the Israelites, the, the Egyptians, but it's also convincing the Israelites that, that sometimes it actually requires us to like figure out that, you know, fig, figure it out and say like, boy, we can do it. Like we, we, we need that help from, 
you know, from each other and from God to say, we can actually move from here to there. And so that, I think that there's something brilliant about that, which is that, you know, the, the choice to change aspects of our lives, they don't come easily. Mm. They really, really don't. We get, we get rooted into, and I think particularly, you know, as you're talking about sort of the right, the moment of right now, we get rooted into ways of thinking that are, that, 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 not, that how it was must be how it must be, right? And, and in fact, and it takes, you know, almost miraculous events to, to sort of, to have, our, have a mind shift. And, and sometimes those miraculous events are, you know, you know come in the form of, of, of uh, plagues, right? Um, and, you know, it, let, let's just take a look at 2020. And, um, right. And you can take, you know, it's like, I don't know, we've had at least five of the 10 of the 10 on um, this year. And, um, and, and I don't mean that to be in like an, in a divine, you know, in a divine way, but it's like, perhaps, perhaps there's a message here that, that actually the, the positive nature of the coronavirus and the positive nature of the, uh, of the, um, of the, even the racial, um, tensions that we've had in our society has been to remind us that that there's actually things that we maybe have not had our eye on mm-hmm. and that that actually maybe there's a need to change that maybe it's a wake-up call to, to something that that really to things that really need to fundamentally shift mm-hmm. and sometimes you know sometimes we look at it as woe is us but perhaps maybe we should shift it and to say well what's the lesson here and what are the what what can we what can we learn, and what can we be open to that perhaps we have sort of said, it you know now it's just it's the way it always was, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that that I think is a good message. The second the second message I think that's really important is the the building of the of the tabernacle, the Mishkan. That I think a lot of people really have a tr- trouble resonating with. But I, but I, I think that it's, um, it's sort of built into a religious model that I think is actually fundamentally important. That I think, you, I think the Grove would probably uh, would really uh, both both aspires to and also resonate. It will resonate with mm-hmm. the tab. First off, the tabernacle is is actually built by gifts from every single member of the community. Every single member of the community brings what they have to build the community, right? And to build the sanctuary and to build the place where they're going to connect with God. It's not just left up to some. It actually becomes the responsibility of all. And those who have more, they give more. And those who don't, they still give what they can. And no one, and no one is um, credited with anything. All for the sake, right? Of, of, of connecting with God and, and a place that we can connect with each other. The second thing that the Mishkan does is that it travels with us, right? It's part of the, the movement and uh, of everything that we do uh, in, in, that, in that journey. And I think the, the, the story of good faith is that it, it moves with us, yeah. right? That, that the words of our ancient texts may be the same, but we change, right? And we see them anew every single time because of that change that we've had in our lives. And it moves with us. 
And the same is true that it becomes a gathering place, a public square where we all gather together to worship to God and to, and, and to be with one another and that the effect, affective experience of prayer. And then it's lived in the day to day in smaller tribes and smaller groups in, um, you know, amongst the Israelites. Yeah. And that I guarantee if your faith community is like my faith community, right, that the Grove is probably doing, right? That there's the affective experience of coming together. And then, well, the lived experience of keeping each other accountable and supporting each other through the journey of life in smaller groups. And, um, and so I, I think it's important because when you read the ancient texts, it's sort of like, what is this thing, right? There's, there's dolphin skins, what, what, you know, um, right? You know, there's a, there's a, you know, in, in incense and fire pans and what is this thing? And, it, and, and, and it's, what it is, is it's the creation of, of, a, of a space that is going to help bring people together and also help people live out the faith and the teachings in their journey of life. And that's the, that's the importance of it. And that's what I think often is so missed in the ancient language and the, you know, the cubits that we don't necessarily understand how big this thing actually was and, right, like, what does it actually mean? And, and, and I think that there's real importance there that sometimes is overlooked and missed. Yeah, that's, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned both those things because uh, I, I didn't, and definitely not as articulately and as beautifully as you described it. And it is, uh, it is so striking to me, maybe this shouldn't be, but just how much similarity there is um, between the way that we think about, you know, how we're trying to lead a congregation of faith now and kind of the way that it was done so many thousands of years ago. And, you know, while a lot has changed, very little has actually has actually changed. Look, I mean, COVID-19 has taught us, right? The coronavirus has taught us that yes, it's important for people to be connected to the larger whole. And we need to have communities of resilience that are gonna be able to support each other through thick and through thin that, that actually a large, you know, a huge large uh, synagogue or a church or whatever, you know, gathering can't just do, um, but, can, but is done much better in smaller, smaller circles of relationship and meaning and purpose making. And I think that uh, I think that there's nothing like a pandemic to say that the relationships that you create that are going to be supportive of each other, you know, are really important. And that physical distancing should not mean social social isolation. And that physical distancing, which may need to be done for health purposes, it, it um, uh, doesn't mean that you shouldn't, you know, you should you should move remove yourself from community. And from the learning, and from the uh, and from the um, enga- and from engaging in um, in in holy work, and I uh, you know so yeah, I, mean, I think there's a lot of similarities uh, between us, and I think that is um, you know sure there's differences, you know there you know uh, it is you know often said that you know Christians believe that uh, Jesus came and the Messiah came and he's going to come back again, and Jews believe that the Messiah has not come but is coming. Right, and perhaps, perhaps we can walk together, right, and and you know, in in the recognition that we both believe that there is this this great future ahead, yeah. right, and and it's not about who's right, you know, uh, in, in the past, but it's about the kind of society that we create that hopefully will um will be a, a society that 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 will be right for the Messiah to come for the future, um, and that that I think is a, a real potential if we will it and if we make it happen.
Well, I definitely think that uh, we stand a better chance of actually being able to create that type of world together um, as opposed to, you know. As opposed to, yeah, being separate from one another. Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, I want to be respectful of your time. but Absolutely. Thank you. I will appreciate you taking time to talk with us. Uh, I can guarantee that uh, my church listening now is like, well, why didn't this guy do every week of this series? <laughs> Apologies, church, but yeah, we got him for one week. At least we saved the best for last. But I felt I felt bad that I had, like forgot what I was going to say um, uh, about about Etro. I listen, Stephen. I, I have so enjoyed uh, talking with you. And I wish that we'd had this opportunity when I was living living in Dallas. But uh, also, huge thanks to to Paige and to Colin, um, who you know who had played a big role in our lives um, and and have been involved with the with not only our wedding but the uh, the weddings of of uh, my sister in law, my brother in law, and just have played a huge role. And I'm so glad that Paige connected the two of us together because it is just a, a wonderful opportunity to, to get to know you and to talk with you and to um to really share in, in, in wisdom so thank you thank you so much well i, I definitely got the lion's share of the wisdom in terms of learning and receiving from you and so i'm grateful for all that you have shared with us today and i look forward hopefully we can talk again in, in the future i would love that I, i'm totally open to that well i appreciate it rabbi knight thank you great night and thank you thank you too all right, bye-bye. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.